This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the centenary year of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Each week on the podcast, we look at some aspect of Bradbury's life and work and interview someone who is inspired by Ray. Welcome to another episode of Bradbury 100. In today's show, I'll be interviewing someone who knew Ray Bradbury personally, who shared Ray's passion for all things Disney, and who dramatised many of Ray's stories for BBC Radio. And that's the award-winning writer Brian Sibley. In Ray Bradbury's 1991 book Yes Tomorrow, which is a collection of essays, he wrote the following dedication. For Walt Disney who started me on this journey when I was seven, and to all the others who helped me continue the journey at Disney Imagineering. And he goes on to list some particular names at Disney. Uh, Roy Disney Jr., John Hench, Marty Sklar, Van Romans, Mark Davis. You'll hear some of these names again later in the podcast when I talk to my guest, Brian Sibley. Now, why would Ray Bradbury dedicate a book to these people? Well, Ray had a lifelong love of the works of Walt Disney. This may not be too surprising, given that both Bradbury and Disney are now strongly associated with stories of childhood and for children. But of course, Bradbury's writing career began with one foot, at least, in horror stories and weird tales, not at all suitable for younger readers. In a 1964 interview, Bradbury mentioned in passing his passion for Disney. This is what he said. Looking back now, if I were to point to one outstanding factor in my life, it would be my irrepressible vitality and hunger for great literary and artistic loves. I died a thousand deaths waiting over the years while Disney finished his Fantasia. The night after the premiere, I saw the film with Neva. Now, Neva was his aunt. He continues, I still remember it as probably the greatest night in my life. I realise how silly this may sound to some, for I have seen much greater things since. But it must be remembered, I was twenty, and passionate, and the perfect age to devour, and keep on devouring, and take strength from the feeding. I saw Fantasia twelve times in as many weeks. Now, In the same year that Bradbury made those remarks, 1964, he first met Walt Disney. It was around Christmas time, and by coincidence, so the story goes, both men were out Christmas shopping. Ray recognised Disney immediately, as he was uh, a familiar public face, and when Ray introduced himself, Disney immediately replied that he knew Ray's books. And the following day, they arranged to meet for lunch and shared their individual experiences of both having worked on exhibits for the 1964 World's Fair. Now, according to Bradbury biographer Sam Weller, Disney and Bradbury shared their pain that the World's Fairs were ephemeral. But Disney had a plan for a kind of perpetual World's Fair, which eventually evolved into Epcot. Around the same time, Disney also showed Ray around his studios and into a workshop where all the parts of Abraham Lincoln 
were sitting, waiting to be assembled. Now, this was an audio-animatronic robot, originally created for that year's World's Fair, but now destined to be put on permanent display in Disneyland. Now, you can't show Ray Bradbury a disassembled robot Lincoln without giving him ideas, and so he rushed home to write up a brand new story, which would eventually be published under the title Downwind from Gettysburg, and that was in Playboy magazine, and later collected in his book Icing the Body Electric. In the story, there's an animatronic Lincoln in a visitor attraction, just like Disneyland, and the animatronic Lincoln is assassinated, history repeating itself. Later on, in the mid-70s, the Disney company called on Ray to contribute to the plans for Epcot, and so he conceived and scripted Spaceship Earth, the ride that runs through that giant golf ball at Epcot. And this is how Ray explained his job in one of his essays. He wrote, The Disney organisation hired me to help plan the dreams that went into Spaceship Earth, part of Epcot Centre, a permanent world's fair, now building to open in 1982. In that one building, I have crammed a history of mankind coming and going back and forth in time, then plunging into our wild future in space. And Spaceship Earth wasn't Ray's only work for Disney. He also contributed ideas for Disneyland Paris. So Bradbury knew Disney and worked for Disney. But I think the connections between them run deeper. Disney spent much of his career taking childhood ideas, uh, like fairy tales, and turning them into grand films that can be enjoyed by people of any age. And in books like Dandelion Wine and Something Wicked This Way Comes, Bradbury did a similar thing, taking the small discoveries and big fears from childhood and presenting them through his adult consciousness. And actually, when I think about it, he didn't just do it in those two books, he did it in some of his best short stories. Uh, the Vault, Zero Hour, The Playground, Icing the Body Electric, and, and so on. And of course, the film of Something Wicked This Way Comes was made by Disney, from Ray's own screenplay. And the construction of the sets for Ray's Greentown, Illinois, on the Disney backlot, visually showed the kind of parallels between the Disney-esque and the Bradbury-esque. And speaking of something wicked, when I was studying Ray's original 1950s screenplay, The Dark Carnival, the script that was the origin of Something Wicked, uh, Ray later turned his original script into the novel that we know today. When I was studying that script, I was taken by a scene where the carnival arrives in town in the dead of night and the circus tents begin assembling themselves. Here's, here's a brief quote so that you'll see what I mean. The dark figures move everywhere. The dark velvet tents, like mourning cloths and bits of funeral wrapping, go up in the wind in an immense silence. And it goes on. There is only the rustle of reptilian wing, the canvas sliding on the earth, and the poles, the prehistoric sound of the pterodactyl as the tents arch and almost fly across the stars. Now, can you believe this poetic writing is in a film script? Anyway, this scene of the tents going up in the darkness is very reminiscent of the sequence in Disney's Dumbo, where the circus tents are put up by silhouetted shadowy figures. 
So it's easy to imagine Ray, the young man who saw Fantasia 12 times in 12 weeks. It's easy to see that young Ray internalising the scene from Dumbo back in 1941, and then unconsciously recalling that imagery as he wrote his own carnival arrival scene in the mid-1950s. Well, now it's time to meet this week's guest on Bradbury 100. And in fact, we had so much to talk about that I'm splitting this interview over two episodes. Today we talk, surprise, surprise, largely about Bradbury and Disney. And next week we'll talk about other things. But let's get started with Brian Sibley. Joining me today is one of my favourite dramatists of Bradbury stories, Brian Sibley. He's the biographer of Peter Jackson, the author of books on Tolkien, Disney, C.S. Lewis. He's a broadcaster and an award-winning dramatist who adapted Lord of the Rings and The Illustrated Man for the BBC. Brian, welcome to Bradbury 100. Thank you, Phil. It's lovely to be here. It's great to see you again. Um, I believe your friendship with Ray Bradbury began with a fan letter you wrote to him in the 1970s. Did you expect to get a reply? Yes, I did expect to get a reply, Phil, uh, for the simple reason that I was young and very arrogant. <laughs> and uh, I automatically assumed that anybody you wrote to would answer. And in fact, only recently I was looking at one or two letters from people to whom I had written, including Charles Shorts, the creator of Peanuts, who, who was, of course, a, another friend of Bradbury's. Yeah, I just seem to have assumed that if I wrote, someone would write back. <laughs> it was as you say, a fan letter in one sense, but there was another reason behind it. And and the reason for writing initially, although I, I must have spent in the letter, I don't have my letter to him, so it's rather hard to remember, but I'm sure there was an awful lot of effusive admiration poured into the letter. But my real reason for writing was that I was trying at the time to write a book about Walt Disney. There had been an unofficial biography of Walt Disney published that was fairly scurrilous, I thought. I was an enormous admirer of Disney. And so I decided to write a kind of response, which was very stupid because I was young, I lived in Britain, I hadn't been to America at that point, so I had no idea why I thought I could do this. But I wrote to a number of people, and one of the people I wrote to was Ray Bradbury because I had read that Ray was a great admirer of Disney and a great lover of Disneyland. And I hadn't been to Disneyland, although I got so many books and magazines and articles about it that I could in truth and when I did first go was able to walk around without the aid of a map because I knew what it looked like so well but um, I had a kind of reservation about Disney's use of audio animatronics and so I posed the question to Ray that wasn't Disney really just creating a kind of simulated life form in these audio animatronic figures these puppets really i felt that was a rather fearful kind of way of looking at the future that we would end up having these kind of animated dolls if you like you know not just the abraham lincoln of disneyland but characters with whom we would interact as humans uh, and I thought that was rather fearful and uh, I got short shrift on the subject of robots as I think you know because you've read the letter. The letter has been published hasn't it you've got it on your website and it's also in that letters of notebook. Yeah I was very very pleased when and, and the Bradbury estate agreed for it to appear when a book which is called letters of note which are considered to be sort of remarkable letters from all kinds of people written to sometimes other famous people but quite often 
to non-entities like me, and they wanted to publish this letter, which was June the 10th, 1974. And the opening words of the letter are, Dear Brian Sibley, this will have to be short. Sorry, I'm deep into my screenplay on Something Wicked This Way Comes and have no secretary, never have had one, so must write all my own letters, 200 a week. Then he starts answering my questions about Disney and about robots, and he fills the page and says, best, Ray B. And then it says, P.S., I can't find the copy of the magazine in which I wrote, but I'll find one and send it to you. And then he tells me about going to Disneyland with Charles Lawton. And he ends again, RB. And then there's a second page which says, P.S., I can't resist commenting on your fears about Disney robots. And then there's another entire page. Well, to get a two-page letter, I mean, I thought I might get a courteous acknowledgement. Uh, But to actually get a two-page letter like that, and that was followed within a few days by copies of articles in an envelope and then a postcard putting me in touch with a guy called Ben Sharpstein, who was one of the artists uh, and producers who'd worked with Walt Disney, and saying, get in touch with this guy, he can help you, and giving me another address of an animator called Dick Humor. And suddenly, I was kind of aware that I hadn't just asked an innocent question and got a very full reply, but it was obviously going to be an ongoing conversation. I immediately followed it up, of course, because, again, I didn't think, well, maybe... If he's got 200 letters a week to write, he won't be wanting to write to me every week. And it just began a a relationship, first by correspondence and then through meetings, either in London or Los Angeles or Florida or wherever, which lasted up until his death. I mean, in, in the latter years, of course, it was much more difficult to contact Ray because he didn't do email and you had to email through his daughter, Z. It was wonderful and would ring up Ray and tell him what the email had said, get his reply and then send it back to you as an email. So, you know, it was a long relationship and and one which I feel really privileged to have had. And of course, at the same time, as I guess we all feel in these circumstances, I just regret all those things I didn't think to ask. You know, I mean, we're very lucky now because Jonathan Eller's two volume biography is still ongoing. I know. Of, of Ray has answered so many of those questions because it's such a fantastic pair of books. But um, there's so many things on the edge of conversations that we had that I wish I'd just pursued and taken a bit further. But there we are. It was a special relationship. I, I totally agree with you. I met Ray only on a couple of occasions and had very brief conversations with him. But every time I came away and thought, oh, you fool, why didn't you ask him this? Or why didn't you ask him that? But the, the few questions that I did ask him, I I never quite got the answer out of him because I was asking some very <laughs> obscure things, you know, and he was, really had to rack his brains to, to even understand what I was talking about. Well, and like all, all famous people who have been interviewed and interviewed and interviewed, Ray, in interview mode, I found Ray would quite often, I interviewed him several times for broadcast or for written uh, interviews, that he would quite often resort to the answers he knew that he had given that he could lock into but I think once or twice in the correspondence things came through where he initiated something that he wanted to say rather like uh, I give an example that I wrote a story a short story for a a magazine called the London magazine and it was very much it was a it could be read as just a simple story but it was very much about an unrequited love affair I had as a as a young man well, it wasn't even a love affair, actually, but uh, an infatuation I had with somebody. 
and uh, it was the same sex relationship and I was very hesitant about writing about it but hid behind the anonymity of writing a short story and I sent a copy to Ray rather hesitantly and said I don't know what you'll think of this Ray and he wrote back and just a postcard but two sides of a postcard type in which he talked about the recognition he had in later life of having had feelings that were never you know carried out or fulfilled in any way uh, with a boy who was in his class at school and you know odd things like that which probably would never have triggered in in an interview just simply because you wouldn't have thought of asking a question like that necessarily so yes but yes like you as so many things i wish i'd asked about and many of them have now been answered by jonathan's books because he has such a brilliant breakdown of how these books Kate, not just the books, but how each of the stories came into being and the relationship with one to another and so on. Um, and there's so much I wished I'd asked Ray about publishing and publishers and filmmakers and filmmaking, uh, because I've had some fairly gruesome experiences of my own and it would have been helpful to have had his life experience on some of that. <laughs> uh, just going back to the animatronics thing, do, do you, are you familiar with Ray's story, uh, Downwind from Gettysburg? Yes, yes, absolutely. Which, of course, must link to absolutely to the to the to the figure in uh, uh, Disney made in for the New York World's Fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, no, I just wondered whether you'd, whether you'd seen that and whether that related to your I, feelings about. Yeah, I don't think it, I don't think it had at the time. Really, I think I was just when when you look at as far as Disney is concerned, and it's it's perhaps even more true today because the world has access to all of these parks through people's, you know, uh, home shot film on cameras and, and phones and so on, that you can now experience the kind of rides in the Disney parks without having to go there. Of course, it's completely different, but then we're living in, at the moment anyway, in a world where everything is different. We're all experiencing everything in a, in a virtual way. But my experience of, of the Disney parks was very much seeing photographs and pictures. And the one thing that you can't get any kind of inkling of, taking, for example, the, the Abraham Lincoln figure in, in Disneyland, which, of course, has gone through a number of iterations since it was first created. But you cannot look at a picture of it or read about it and feel in the same way as sitting with an audience of people responding to the way in which that audio animatronic figure comes alive and speaks and there is something about being there and in the, in that letter ray had said to me you don't know what you're talking about basically come to disneyland i'll throw you in the jungle river ride i'll ride you on a rocket to the day after tomorrow and uh, then you'll then you'll believe well i never had the opportunity to ride in disneyland with him anywhere simply because our schedules didn't coincide but I was at Disneyland for some media event I can't remember specifically what it was I think it may be Mickey's 60th birthday or something like that and Ray came over to meet me at the Disneyland Hotel and I interviewed him on that occasion and we were so close to the park the Disneyland Hotel it's really adjacent to Disneyland that we had to close the shades and the blinds and everything because the sound of the people screaming on the Big Thunder Mountain Railway in the park just over there was constantly going on you know it's a kind of sort of backtracking sound to uh, to raise interview so that was that was the closest we got to being in Disneyland together was sitting in a bedroom in, in the Disneyland hotel <laughs> but uh, he was correct of course in saying that you have to experience 
those things. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody experiencing them likes them or approves of them or enjoys them. But uh, it is quite different from the, the ignorant position in which I was sitting when I wrote that letter to him. <laughs> but you did later go to the opening of Epcot and Ray was there at that on that occasion. What, what can you recall about that? When, when Epcot opened, I was making a television documentary about the project and had had the, the pleasure of working over a number of months back and forth in the States, talking to the executives and to the Imagineers, the, the people who create the, the attractions which go into the Disney theme parks, and two of whom, a man called John Hench, who was an extraordinary Renaissance man, uh, a previously an animator and an artist who'd moved to the Imagineering department and, and had contributed to much of the creation of, of the Disneyland project. And Marty Sklar, who was one of the closest associates of Walt in his latest years. And they'd become very good friends of mine. So I was very privileged that when uh, Epcot opened, they had a special VIP evening. And I was there on a press junket and all the press were issued down to uh, Orlando to a, a sort of kind of pub bar called Rosie O'Grady's. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was quite famous at the time, an Irish pub. But I and my producer were given the distinct honour of being allowed to join the VIP party for the opening of Spaceship Earth. We were the only press people there. On the understanding we didn't have any recording equipment with us and we behaved like guests, not as reporters. But I remember, I didn't own a dinner suit at the time, I remember that <laughs> I had to go to Mosporos in London and hire a, a, a DJ and carry it all the way to the States just for this one evening's event. Anyway, that I did. And it was, uh, I had met Ray earlier in the day because Ray was on a, a round of interviews in the Epcot section, which is known as the World Showcase. And we happened to just bump into each other. He was coming off a podium where he'd been talking to some press people. So we chatted and talked there. But when the night of the opening of Spaceship Earth, it was a, a fantastic evening. I mean, it poured with rain on the day of the opening of the park itself. And everybody was all dressed up in their finery, but were walking around through sort of almost floods of water all the ladies high-heeled fine shoes were ruined everybody tuxedos were drenched people were drinking champagne off trays which were filled with water it was raining so hard and miraculously only disney could do it there were i think there were about three or four thousand guests and there were three or four thousand umbrellas being handed out as you got to the gate but it was a very damp evening however the night when spaceship earth the special party just the spaceship earth uh, took place. Uh, it was a beautiful evening. It was notable because they'd got all the big bands famous in America to be playing. There was the Harry James Band and, and the Glenn Miller Band, all playing at different places around Spaceship Earth. There was food and wine and drink, you know, ad-lib. So everybody was having a great time. They were dancing, they were listening to the band, they were eating, they were drinking. They weren't particularly interested in riding Spaceship Earth, which uh, is this huge geosphere uh, in which you take a, a ride in a in a car on a kind of cyclical route up to the top, and as you ride up through this this space, uh, you encounter the various uh, representations, all done in audio animatronic figures, of communication from the earliest days of cave painting through to the through to the printing press, the creation of cinema, and so on, through to the space age, and finally at the top of this giant geosphere, it's as though you are 
catapulted out into space and the, the roof of the geosphere then becomes like a planetarium and you, you then float down from this. It's, it's, it, I don't know whether it has the same impact today, but at the time it had extraordinary emotional impact. There was a commentary that was recorded for it by Walter Cronkite, the famous American broadcaster, and that played as you were going round. Anyway, I was walking with my producer underneath the, the, this structure and bumped into Ray, who was just happening to come in, in the opposite direction with one of his daughters. And he said, have you ridden this ride yet? And I said, yes. And he went, damn. <laughs> and I said, why, Ray? And he said, because I was going to take you on it. And I said, well, we'd love to come on it with you. Uh, if, if you're happy to do it again, of course, the hell I'll do it again. So we go into Spaceship Earth ride entrance and it's deserted. There's nobody there. And normally you would queue back and forth to get on the vehicle. Nobody in sight. We walk straight onto a vehicle. Ray and his daughter in the front seat, uh, my producer Norman Stone and myself in the seat behind. And we ride through Spaceship Earth. And on the loudspeaker, there's Walter Cronkite giving us the set spiel about each of these tableau that we pass. But over the top of that, and over the top of the music, which is also going on, Ray is half turned towards us, giving us his commentary about why he introduced the uh, the, the uh, Greek players, and why he introduced Renaissance painting, you know, what the purpose of each of these scenes were. So it was an extraordinary, extraordinary event. And we, we stepped off it, and while we were standing talking, at the end of the ride, along came somebody else who I also knew and Ray knew very well indeed, which was the Disney animator Ward Kimball. And Ward Kimball was uh, one of what are known as Disney's nine old men. He was one of the legendary uh, set of animators who were closest to Walt and, and indeed carried on the animation tradition after Walt Disney died. And he was responsible for all kinds of characters like the Mad Hatter and the Cheshire Cat in Alice in Wonderland and, and lots of other often quite kooky characters. He was a very kooky man himself. And I'd met Ward on a, on a number of occasions. Uh, so we then stood and talked with Ward Kimball and, and Ray. And I mentioned that because one of the things in my collection, which I bought when Ray's estate went up for auction, is a original cell from Pinocchio showing Jiminy Cricket, which was the, probably the most significant character that Walt Kimball had contributed uh, to that film and to, if, indeed, perhaps all Disney animation, really. It was a, an original cell of that, of showing um, Jiminy Cricket underwater in, in the scene from Pinocchio, where Pinocchio goes in search of his father. And the, the mount is inscribed to Ray with love from Jiminy's stepfather, and so, you know, I knew both men and uh, it's a particular treasure of mine that I have something which unites both of them and uh, and Disney as well. Yeah, oh, that's terrific. That's brilliant. Um, going back to earlier times, can you recall the first Bradbury you ever read? Yeah, no question of trying to remember what it was, Phil. Uh, it was The Golden Apples of the Sun. I'm actually holding a copy of it in my hands now and it, it has a kind of it's a black cover. The writing is big and bold. Ray Bradbury, author of the Martian Chronicles, hadn't read that at the time. The Golden Apples of the Sun, stories of weird, beautiful and wonderfully improbable people, places and things. And underneath is a kind of roundel with kind of bright orangey red and purple characters, creatures. 
I now know that they are taken from Goya prints. At the time, they, they just seemed like strange and exotic figures to me, but I now know where they came from. But the significant thing, in a way, was on the back of the cover, and this is what caught me, rather than the front, actually, was it talked about the imagination of Ray Bradbury. And the word imagination is in big letters, and it's back to front. It's a mirror image, and that just caught my attention and made me pick it up. The moment I opened it, I saw the very first illustration, which is for a story called The Foghorn, and I was caught by the style of the illustrator. I didn't know at the time the work of Joe Magnani, who was really in many ways Ray's, I won't say his sole illustrator, because other people certainly illustrated his work, but certainly the one to whom he felt closest. And for me, absolutely captured the feeling of Ray's stories in line, uh, in such a de detailed and yet at the same time economic way. And story four in the book, which is called The Wilderness, has a picture of only a section of a huge planet with other planets, including the Earth, can be seen in the distance and lots of asteroids and, and other uh, stars and things and a rocket shooting across from left to right. And the wilderness image stuck in my... All the images in this book, I can just... As I look at them, I can remember being the 12-year-old boy that I was, finding this on a summer's day, heat of summer. It was a very, very hot day. And my parents thought I was crazy because they were sitting in the garden and I couldn't be prized out of my bedroom because I just sat reading this book from cover to cover and I and at the end of it to use a kind of Bradbury-esque expression I felt I'd been baptized you know I felt as though I had been changed from what I was in just the the task of reading 170 something pages suddenly it was I was a different person I was aware of other things and, and many years later many many years later in a bookseller's catalogue I saw this picture, instantly knew that it was the drawing for the wilderness. And it was advertised as being a drawing on tracing paper in ink, very fine, with an indecipherable signature. <laughs> and the, the seller had no idea where it was, what it was or where it came from. But the moment I saw it, I knew it, I bid for it and got it for next to nothing. It's the only Munyani drawing I own, but I'm very very pleased it's from the, because I've always wanted to own one, uh, I'm very pleased it's from the book that really made me fall in love with Ray and Magnani because I got a lot of his other books as well. Yeah. How big is that piece of artwork? It's it's about it's not as big as you might think. Uh it's about um probably about ten inches. It's about it's about ten by eight, I would say, probably. Immensely detailed and every little crater, every dot in the the, the kind of space of of stars and asteroids are all drawn meticulously. And I'm intrigued by the fact that he did many of these drawings over and over again and recreated and changed them and so on. But yes, an immaculate piece of art that I was very lucky to get because obviously if somebody had known what it was, there were a number of Magnani's paintings and drawings that came up for auction after Ray's death, including the very famous Caravan, which is this drawing of a train, which was so integral to the creation of Something Wicked This Way Come, this very dark, strange almost spectral train that's crossing what looks like a kind of viaduct um, which is broken away so the train has come to a full halt really because there's nothing there's no further track in front of it and the, the headlight off on the front of the train is streaming into the darkness and that picture which was one of the first 
couple of pictures that Ray saw of Magnani's work when he went to an exhibition by the artist triggered their relationship and their friendship. And the price that those paintings and drawings went for after Ray's death uh, was, of course, astronomic. So I was very lucky to, to find my Magnani <laughs> because the dealer didn't know what it was. <laughs> those are the best ones, aren't they? When you know uh, what it is. It would, <laughs> but, uh, but Golden Apples of the Sun... Uh, uh, and of course, there's a number of the stories in it, which I have later dramatized, uh, including the fruit at the bottom of the bowl, which is one of my favorite stories. That, of course, immediately, having said that it was a kind of baptismal experience, immediately set me on the track of finding out more about this writer. And since he was, as it said on the cover, the author of the Martian Chronicles, I went to find the Martian Chronicles. And then a couple of years later, I discovered something wicked this way comes. You know, we live in a different world now, of course. I'm talking about a world when I lived in a fairly small town just outside of London, country-ish kind of village. So unless you found a book in a library, and I was an avid user of the library, as was Ray, and not only using my own four tickets, but also my my, my father's four tickets and my mum's four tickets. So I would read about 12 books a week. If it wasn't in the library and it didn't happen to pop up in your local newsagent, it wasn't that easy to find things unless you were going to London and shopping in London, which as a young kid I didn't do. But anyway, I found a copy eventually of Something Wicked This Way Comes, which remains for me one of my favourite all-time books, not just a favourite Bradbury book. And it's a great sadness to me that I proposed it to the BBC as a, a drama. The film was in the process of coming out and... Uh, there was a lot of nervousness. Disney, who owned the rights, were reluctant to say yes, that I could do it on radio. But Ray intervened with the then CEO of Disney, a man called Michael Eisner. And Ray persuaded Michael Eisner that I would do a, a good job on radio and it wouldn't interfere with the film. It could only prom help promote the film. Eisner gave his blessing and then the BBC turned it down. So we never did it. It's one of the one of the great sadnesses that for me that it didn't happen, particularly as many years later they then did a version which was crammed into 45 minutes and was well only a pale the palest of shadows of that extraordinary book that i think probably was the the book that then made it impossible for me not to want to know more about this man and so between 1960 and 1973 or 4 whenever it was that i wrote to ray i guess i was just becoming more and more Ray-centric, if you like, <laughs> my writing. I mean, it really affected my writing. I mean, not, not on many of the journalistic things that I've written, but, but certainly it affected the way that I wrote because for me, the overpowering importance of Ray is his ability to conjure images, images. That, and I, I think it's why it particularly appeals to young people. Um, as a young person, particularly when you're developing your own vocabulary and understanding words and learning about words and wanting to, to find out what words mean, that somebody who gives you words, often not necessarily alien words, but words in conjunction with other words that are striking because they're not usually used within that context. And his, his ability to conjure language and to, to create metaphors that that really just excite you and, and and give you a way of looking at the world in a very different kind of way that those aspects certainly uh, changed the way i wrote and certainly whenever i write about bradbury which i've done a couple of times i find myself immediately 
writing Bradbury <laughs> 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 uh, because I just love the idea of, of, of putting those kind of startling images, one word against another or an unusual word to describe something which is quite commonplace. And I think that is the underlying quality of Ray's, all Ray's writing, is that he takes things which are commonplace and then he makes them extraordinary. Or he takes things that are extraordinary, otherworldly or out of this worldly, and he then makes them relatable to something which we can understand. So he takes the extraordinary and, and makes it not commonplace, but makes it understandable in, a, in a, an ordinary worldly way and at the same time takes simple things that all of us have experienced in our lives and then makes them seem tremendously more important than we might have thought they were. I, I mean, he, he is just... I had to write an entry on him for an encyclopedia of literature, American literature, and he is, to my mind, although he has he had his passions amongst writers, and you can see the influence of some of them, Obviously, people like Poe and Washington Irving and Melville and so on. But despite all of that, his voice seems to me anyway, unique, not just unique in science fiction and fantasy writing, but unique actually in American writing. Actually, I'd say in all English literature, there isn't a voice that's like his. Mm. Um, and some people like it and enjoy listening to it and others turn away from it because they find it too much artifice or too contrived but if you like it I think what you feel about it is the same way as you feel about Dickens for example totally different writers although Ray admired Dickens enormously that what you feel is that you have you're hearing a specific writer's voice not just telling a story but actually is telling the story to you in in a very intimate and personal way and I think that's a quality which just shines through all his all his writing, you know, from the best to what he probably in later life considered the least uh, meaningful. But everything is touched with that very, very special quality. My thanks to Brian Sibley for joining me today. We'll continue the conversation next week with Brian talking about how he adapts short stories and novels into award-winning radio dramas. And I'll put links to Brian's website on my website, which is bradburymedia.co.uk. So please join me next week for another episode of Bradbury 100. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols in collaboration with the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe to the podcast using your podcast app. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, SoundCloud and all good podcast places. And you can find us on Facebook too. For more information, head to bradburymedia.co.uk. Bradbury 100